This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life doesn't have a pause button. That's why Capella University's FlexPath Learning Format lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them if something comes up. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference for you at capella.edu. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. And this week's show is an especially on-point presentation of that idea because it's our monthly check-in with Republican strategist Rick Wilson, who is hot off the book trail. He has a number one New York Times bestseller. I am pretty sure there are some people in the audience who might have bought the book already. If you haven't, it is called Everything Trump Touches Dies, A Republican Strategist Gets Real About the Worst President Ever. It is funny and infuriating in equal measures because that's who Rick is. And without much further ado, here's our conversation, which this week uh, was structured by you, the audience, because we went out on Twitter and asked, what would you like to ask Rick Wilson? It is our Ask Rick Wilson Anything episode, something we'll probably do again. With no further ado, here he is. So it's interesting when I, I went to listeners to ask you questions, a lot of them had really much more specific questions than the kind of stuff you and I generally talk about, which is like pretty philosophical, I think. Um, sure. And and they want to talk about some specific races. They want your insight as a strategist on specific races. Okay. So yeah, sure. And since that is happening right now, let's talk about it. Let's talk about yep. Florida, just for instance. Let's talk Florida. Yeah. Uh, well, look, the, the, the two big marquee races, obviously, the governor's race, going to be between DeSantis and Andrew Gillum. Um, and both sides got their fondest ideological wish. You've got a, um, a, 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 a Trumper on one side and a, and a semi-Bernie bro on the other. And, I will point and out, so, wait, 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 just one thing. He did support Hillary yeah. Clinton. Gillum did, so it's I, not... Uh, yeah, so, I, I know. Okay. Yeah, did. All right. Um, but what we have here is a situation where the two candidates are talking from the edges out not from the edges in. Mm. And so Andrew Gillum is talking to the most progressive Democrats, and DeSantis is talking to the Trumpiest of Trumpers, and both of these guys are going to do a base-only race, which is going to leave a huge number of voters in the middle unaddressed unless one of them makes a pivot at some point. Um, and I think, I think it's a little harder for DeSantis to make a pivot because you know when you abandon anything about Trumpism, Trump supporters immediately say, you know, you're a rhino, cuck shill, traitor, and they abandon you. Um, if you if you look at it in terms of, of, of purity for ideology, he's got a worse climate than Gillum. Gillum's got um, some ability to grow and some ability to, to move a little bit to the center, but not a ton, because he's staked out some positions that you're going to see DeSantis use as the levers in his campaign from the, from the very start. You know, abolish ICE, raise taxes, uh, go after guns. These are things that in Florida you know, are going to be a little more problematic um, 
you know, in the general election than I think the progressives uh, are hoping. So, but we're going to we're going to see a real test of whether you know you can with an African American uh, statewide candidate, which we haven't had in uh, in the modern era. Um, you're going you're gonna to see if he can if he can do the Obama trick of motivating African Americans to turn out in that eighty percent ninety percent range. And if he does, he's got a fighting chance. He can wrap up the four or five counties in South Florida that have mostly African American vote and that have a um, and that comprise about fifty percent of the overall electorate. Now, do you think that DeSantis's um, monkey comment and or it looks like he may be an administrator on this pretty racist Facebook? Group, do you think that those things might matter? Um, look, I, I think anytime you have an African American candidate um, and you're a Republican in the era of Trump, um, in the most generous possible description, in the most in the most generous and 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 sympathetic description of DeSantis, it was incredibly fucking stupid. Mm. Okay, that's 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 his good as I can get for the guy right now, because it was, you know, if you're a Harvard and Yale educated lawyer, um, you ought to have a little more mindfulness about the, uh, the racial code words that are very abundantly clear in our society. Um, and I haven't, I haven't, I, I saw a couple of tweets about this racist Facebook group, and I haven't read the, I haven't read the articles or the coverage on it, but I, I will just say this, um, even if, even if, DeSantis meant absolutely nothing by it. Um, in the environment and the climate we're in now, um, where the president has actively embraced the alt-right at many different points, and where, where, where there are a lot of people seeking to normalize um, a very ugly strain of ethnic uh, hatred or racial hatred in our country as part of the party's politics, um, you want to be super careful in a state that has 13% African-American and uh, 16% Hispanic voters. You want to be real careful about that. So I, I think he's going to probably pay for that for a while. And it set an early tone. Again, even if he didn't mean it, it was just political malpractice. And I'm going to, you know, I, I don't know Ron DeSantis personally. I don't know his personal history. But, you know, anytime you say something like that in a, in a climate where you ought to be smart enough to know better, you know, you're going to have people legitimately saying this is a dog whistle. Is the Senate race interesting at all to you? The Senate race is interesting now for two reasons. And, and the one thing that happened in the Senate race that a lot, a lot of people have figured out yet is that Andrew Gillum may have just saved Bill Nelson. Gillum getting into the race means African-American turnout is going to bump and probably bump significantly for a general off-year election. So Bill, Bill Nelson, you know, who's the luckiest man in politics, by the way, <laughs> he always catches a damn break and, and the people who don't believe in luck in politics have never looked at this guy's career. He's always picked the worst possible Republican opponent, and he's always gotten so lucky. Well, this time he picked um, Rick Scott, who, you know, as, as weird as Rick Scott's affect may seem to people, uh, and I say this with no, like, ideological love or hate, as weird as his affect is, he's a damn good candidate. And Democrats should not sleep on Rick Scott. He's got unlimited money. And he is the single most disciplined person I have ever witnessed in politics. He is relentlessly, constantly, always on message. He never deviates. He never stops. He's like the damn terminator of politics. Mm. So he will go after Bill Nelson hard. That will be a barn burner of a race. Um, 
you know, it's speaking in total candor, Bill Nelson is getting up there. He's lost a step or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Rick Scott, that's one of the most likely pickups for the Republicans in the 2018 cycle. Um, but Gillum getting in may have saved Nelson's bacon. So let's move a little to the West. Georgia gubernatorial race. That's another Trump versus anti-Trump kind of uh, ideological sure is. contest. It sure is. And, and you've got two, you know, once again, you've got two people that are on an ideological edge in their parties. Both of them are pretty far out there. I would not say that Abrams is as far to the left as Gillum is in Florida, but she's still, you know, a robust progressive. And also um, African-American. And so race, we have that to... race is the competition between the donuts and everything else. The donut is the ring of counties that surround Atlanta. And the thing about the donut is that about 60% of the population of Georgia lives in a 50-mile radius of that area. And so the race will be fought there. The fact that Stacey Abrams was a mayor and well-known in the Atlanta media market is a big plus for her. Uh, Kemp is basically an unknown figure. And I think she has the opportunity to make this a referendum on Trump in the African-American community and in the, uh, and in the, uh, in the, in the minority community around Atlanta. And in some other parts of the state, Southwest Georgia is also heavily African American, um, and and you know have a good shot at it. Look, it is still Georgia; it is still a very red state. Uh, but I think that that's an interesting race, insofar as it's a real it's another real referendum on two people on the wish list for their party, uh, their, their party's most activist wings. And uh, for for those who don't know, I actually just looked at myself. It is a right now a tie there too. It uh, looks like about their flop. The two polls that have been done are forty six, forty four, flip flopped um, between them. So, yeah. speaking of ties and moving west again, the race yeah. that everyone is watching: Beto O'Rourke versus Rafael Cruz. Yes, Rafael, the Canadian Zodiac killer. <laughs> <laughs> so. Here's my, here's my take on the race. I've said this a lot. People have heard me say this on Twitter and Periscope and elsewhere. Um, Beto O'Rourke is an excellent candidate. If he wasn't an excellent candidate, he wouldn't even be in the fight because it's still Texas. Right. And I know a lot of Democrats are fired up, but it is still Texas. And I also want to remind people that it's still Texas. <laughs> if I can just add, I do you mind if I add yeah. that it is Texas? Um, it is Texas, in fact. Yes, it is. Just, and, and, just, and, just, I'm glad we brought that up. Well, and, and I because it's, um, because it's my home state, I want to actually add even more context because I happen to know this off the top of my head. It has been 20 yep. years since they elected a Democrat statewide. In every election since then, I believe, I, if, there may be one, literally one exception, the Democrat in a statewide election has lost by double digits. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a, look, if Beta wasn't a top tier candidate, he wouldn't even be in the fight. Right, right. But he is a good candidate. He's an, um, I mean, he's... The answer on the NFL kneeling issue, as much as, as much as Fox and my former conservative buddies tried to turn it into, oh, my God, Beto hates the flag, um, that answer was eloquent and graceful and motivating and, and, and impressive as hell. And if he can consistently bring that, uh, I think he'll be in very good shape. Now, Ted Cruz is interestingly, in his advertising and messaging, been forced back on his heels a bit because he's having to say, oh, I fought for the flood victims of Hurricane Harvey. and He's trying to get all Texan again. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Ted Cruz's natural habitat is, is you know, conference rooms in the Senate and conference rooms in 
the Heritage Foundation, not, you know, the, the, uh, the dusty plains of the beautiful state of Texas. He is very much a creature of Washington now, I think, in the minds of most people. So if Beto O'Rourke is running as a Texas Democrat, he could beat Ted Cruz. If he runs as a national Democrat and, and, does, and does stupid things to make sure he punches the right buttons nationally and doesn't run as a Texan, he can't beat Ted Cruz. Can but I offer if, my... If there's going to be somebody to beat Ted Cruz, it's this guy. And, and I think that Ted Cruz, you know, Beto has a certain coolness about him and a certain, uh, and a certain like, you know, hipster dude thing that, you know, Ted Cruz is the guy who wears smoking jackets. And <laughs> Beto's the guy who wears bands. You know, so I think you've got a you got a comparison there that's going to be pretty interesting. Do you want to hear something really mind bending? Sure. Ted Cruz is two years older than Beto. Wow. <laughs> because because Ted Cruz looks like he's a seventy year old man trapped in a portly forty five year old's body, but I'm taken. <laughs> yeah. You and I could go on about this. And you know what? After the election, or maybe even right up before the election, let's do this again right before the election, because I, yeah, I have yeah, a yeah. feeling there'll be more to say. We are going to move on north a little bit to speaking of midterms. Tennessee. What do you think Tennessee. of the bres- well, president? President? Bre- is that how you say it? Bred? Bred? Bredson? Bredson. is a, you know, you, you've got a guy who's a former two-term governor. He's got great positives. Uh, his 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 fave unfave ratio is basically two to one positive negative, which is very good in politics. Uh, Tennessee's a red state, and again, you've got a state where about sixty five percent of the people live within about fifty to seventy five miles of Nashville. And he's a popular figure there. She is not as popular there, and Tennessee is changing very very quickly, uh, especially in the Nashville and, 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 and Memphis areas where they've become um, much less red. Their suburbs are becoming like a lot of other suburbs. They're purple at at the at the at the moment, and maybe blue within four to six years. You've got a ton of young people moving into Nashville. I mean, my daughter's one of them. Um, and and so, you, like a lot of urban areas where there's these influx of young people, uh, they, they turn purple and then blue in pretty rapid succession. And Gretzky's a pretty popular guy. He's a pretty centrist Democrat, sort of a technocratic uh, kind of guy. He's not a hard fire breather. Um, so it's hard to for it's going to be hard for for Blackburn to, to box him in as a uh, you know as a, as a as a socialist Antifa member. And we should I make clear this. So this is the Senate race in Tennessee between President and Marsha Blackburn, who is basically just a it's another she's another Trump mold uh, Republican oh, yes. and running against a popular but more somewhat more moderate. Right. I mean, this is not the the contest yeah, of. I mean, this is not the same ideological polls. No, I meant actually her and Democratic opponent is not on the ideological edge. Yeah. So yeah. it's a little but bit different than it, the other. It's races. interesting because yeah, he's he's much more of a centrist. Yeah. He's much more of a of a middle of the road guy. Yeah, and that race is according to Real Clear Politics uh, again in a real tight, uh, real tight. It's it's pretty tight. He's, he's been ahead slightly in a number of polls recently, but inside the margin for most of them, if I recall. Yep, that is what it looks so, like. That's one to watch. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then uh, be right back with the Ask Rick Anything segment that, I've, Ask Rick Anything. that people have asked segment. for. People have begged for this. Be right back. <laughs> 
These days, you can get practically everything on demand, like this podcast. You can listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? Stamps.com is for people who like things on demand, people who like to do things according to their own schedule. You can do stamps and packages 24-7 at your desk whenever it is convenient for you with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer, and the mail carrier picks it up. There's no searching for a place to drop it off. There's no dropping it off. The mail carrier picks it up. Just click print and mail. You are done. And right now, you can use Friends for a special offer. It includes $55 of free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Do not wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, which I really do wish they would call, you know, just a microphone because some people who use microphones aren't on the radio. But click on that microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's Stamps.com and enter friends for $55 of free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week free trial. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. So I want to move kind of from your strategist mind to your heart. Yes. Who are you going to vote for? in Florida, Rick? Well, that's a fine question. I haven't seen how the candidates perform yet. Hmm. I will say this. Um, Andrew Gillum is way to the left of anything I believe in. Um, but, you know, I don't believe Trumpism is either conservative or Republican. And, and you know, I legitimately, I legitimately think Andrew, Andrew Gillum is, is far to the left of where I am on, on a bunch of ideological scores. And I, I think Ron DeSantis may end up being, you know, Trumpier than thou, but, but, so you know, I, I'm not, I, I won't hesitate, by the way, to undervote if I don't have a good choice in the race. Hmm. Okay. Now, I'm not, I'm not uh, I hate to disappoint my, my more liberal followers, but, um, you know, uh, 
a gigantic tax hike for the state of Florida and gun control, uh, gun seizures, um, don't add up to me to be, you know, they're not where I'm at ideologically. They're not, and I also don't think they're a winning strategy, which is, you know, I still have to look at these guys professionally, too, and go, does he suck as a candidate? Because how you are as a candidate often tells you how you'll be as a, as a, as a, as a leader. I we are going to have to at some point just like have to have like an in person debate about gun stuff. <laughs> I know, I know. We'll Come go down, shooting together. We'll you know what? Shooting. We'll go we'll shooting together, fun. and then we'll have a debate <laughs> about gun stuff because I know it would just be pointless for for me to try and engage with you here. Now, I did have one person ask, you know, on the the if I. If I or you could vote for a Democrat, this person was actually writing as someone who considers himself a never Trumper, saying that I have to so pause for a second because it was really well put and I want to read it exactly. Oh, here we go. Um, okay. This person writes, I guess my logic has been I'd rather lose the ideological battle for a round than support someone who is wholly unfit and dangerous. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, look, if, if, if it's somebody who, who is so um, filled with the Trump ideology, nationalist populism, overt racism, trade wars, all this, all this grotesque stupidity, and, and, and there's a clear break. Look, I would have voted for Doug Jones in Alabama. Hell, I worked to elect Doug Jones in Alabama. Right. So, you know, there are, there are some bright lines out there. Um, but there are also some Republican candidates. I mean, interestingly, in Florida, since we've been talking about it a lot, two of the statewide uh, people that won the Republican primaries, uh, Matt Caldwell for Agriculture Commissioner and Ashley Moody for Attorney General, they were attacked by their opponents as being anti-Trump. They were, they were you know, called never-Trumpers. They, they were both Marco endorsers, and they never, like, jumped on the train. And they were attacked brutally during the campaign. And Michael Waltz in the Florida Congressional Six actually filmed the Never Trump ad in 2016. Those are people I could vote for because I know they're good people. And I, I mean, I know all three of them, but, I, but, but they also displayed independence from, from Trumpism. So, and, and, and you know, as I just said before, there are places in the country where if I were in North Carolina, I'd vote for Dan McCready. He's to the right of his Republican opponent on trade and balanced budgets and the economy and business. Well, I think the question here isn't the question here isn't that are crazy world. I mean, to me, the question isn't are are there Democrats you would vote for? I am sure there are Democrats you would vote for. The question, I think, is more: Are you willing to vote for a Democrat because you feel it's that important to keep the conservative out of office? You said you're willing to undervote, but it also sounded to me when you're answering that question like there is a degree of dangerousness. No, it's, it's very case by case. It's very case that, by case that you might like if I mean, if if DeSantis turned out to be. Truly, there is a there is a low that DeSantis could reach that you would say I have to vote for the. De- well, it, it would require it would require a pretty sharp break from the president, and he's not going to make that break at, the, at this point. What do you mean? But he may look. You, what you may see. What, what you mean? You Did, wait, I'm sorry. I don't. Lab I'm, experiment I'm, I'm, of the, I, the perils of, of, of you know running yourself and your campaign as a Donald Trump lookalike, and and you know Florida is not. Um, it's not the worst state for Trump out there because we have so many old people. But, you know, if, if the campaign is going to be mediated by Fox News, Ron DeSantis is going to keep going out to the edge further and further out. So, but again, I, I'm not, uh, the, strategic voting is one thing, 
And there will be places I think I will find myself doing a strategic vote. But I'm not, I'm not just going to blindly go, okay, well, well, Andrew Gillum is great on all these issues because I don't think he's great on all these issues for me. Well, I don't think anyone's asking you to agree with him. It's just, you know, what are you, who are you willing to support in order to keep a Trump-type person right. out there, of office? There are also issues where, you know, if I'm looking at the calculus as a, as a, as a never-Trump guy, um, you know, state races are much less important in the big picture than the federal races. True. When you're looking at the congressional number, if you're looking at the Senate number, those are different issues uh, by far because they're much more relevant to whether Donald Trump is able to continue to behave as he's behaved and continue to stay in power. So maybe I should ask you how you're going to vote in the Senate race. <laughs> Still an open question. Oh, Rick okay. Scott has been running from Trump like a scalded dog, which mm. is interesting. Yeah. Rick Scott has been like going to Puerto Rican voter events which is interesting. And, and I, I, you know, again, it's a long, it's a long haul. I mean, there are a lot of things Bill Nelson has done over the years that don't offend me, but, but, uh, but I have said this well before Donald Trump. Bill Nelson is a cipher and a, and a pretty much do-nothing senator. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, get the, I get the test I'm being run through here on these questions, but, <laughs> again, it, it, it's a case-by-case basis, and it's a point basis where where these campaigns are all going to end up with a test for the candidates to show me, toward the end, most likely, where they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I see that they're, that they're you know, appropriately chastened by, by President Suckup and have run from him some and have staked out a position where they, have to, where they can't get back to Donald Trump's loving arms, then we're going to have a different discussion than if it's, you know, rote uh, Trumpism all the way down. A lot of people asked a question that you and I have kind of gone around about a little bit, but I think it's worth asking again. Have you thought about what your career and life will look like post-Trump? This person points out yeah, a have. majority. I'm going to write some I'm going to write some cool books and make some movies. That's my <laughs> career now. <laughs> but I will say this. I'm all kidding aside. Um, the, the, there's a large, like, a growing number of corporate side people that want my counsel and advice about how to deal with this guy, mm-hmm. and, and and how to message to their both their customers and their and their employees and their and, you know their forward facing stuff, especially if they have to interact with him. I would and, I, go ahead. you know I feel like there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, there's a moment here where yes my my. My position in the Republican apparatus is out of flavor, but you know, it's, there's a lot of I want to talk to you after November guys right now yeah. that are living in, in fear, and there are a lot of people that I have advised who have who have um, you know shaken their heads and said, oh no, we need to listen to our our pro-Trump consultants, and now they're not candidates anymore. So um, that's a uh, that. Like Liam Neeson, I have a particular set of skills, <laughs> and, and the most frightening thing for, for Trumpers is that I'm on the free market now, and I'm not obliged to protect them hmm. uh, professionally. So, and I will never get tired of saying this, being a New York Times number one bestseller, he says, having his valet bring his smoking jacket, uh, <laughs> <laughs> has changed my sort of career trajectory a little bit. I think there's some there are some other opportunities that are brewing up there for me that aren't uh, that aren't 
going out and sitting with Congressman, you know, so-and-so in Ashcrack, Arkansas, and saying, now we're going to make an ad about crime. Yeah, I was going to say the last time we talked about this, like something has changed since the last time we talked about this, which is that you have a number one Times, uh, number one New York Times book uh, bestseller. Um, we used to joke about you needing to erase a zero off your paychecks. I don't know if maybe that's true anymore. I think maybe there I, might be. I think uh, I think the zero has come back. I think the zero so, has come yeah. back, indeed. And maybe who knows? Who knows how many zeros you'll need? Could be more. Could be even more if I do my job correctly. That is right. <laughs> um, no one needs to worry about Rick, basically. Um, yeah, don't don't worry, guys. I'm I'm going to be okay. So let's move a little more. Again, some more sort of introspective and, and philosophical questions. I liked this one. Given that politics is all about opportunism, how can I trust these newly awakened conservative consciences? How would Rick identify who is truly interested in bettering things and who is just betting that Trump is going to go down? What's the tell? Well, um, before I had a number one New York Times bestselling book, I risked everything uh, on my position on this. And I, I, I risked my entire business um, you know, I ended up putting my family at risk, and I stuck with it way before there was a, even the, the shiny idea of a book in this thing. So, you know, you, you know how people are going to react under stress and under duress and under, under pressure when you see them react under pressure. And uh, I accepted that pressure, and I, and I fought through it. And, and uh, you're going to have to take my word that, I, that, that the sense of liberation from this and, and, and the sense of, like, looking back on those burning bridges and going, thank God, um, I'm okay with it. And, and, you know, I've been blunt about where I'm at. My critique of Trump is from the right. And, and it's, it's a, I, I like to think it's a principled critique from the right as opposed to the, the, the consultocracy in D.C. who are all out completely bought into Trumpism because of the Republican base, none of whom believe a damn thing they're doing. And and they will switch as soon as Trump falls back to oh I was never Trump alive I just had to play along with it blah 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 you know I have I have been completely raw and blunt and and, and, and direct about where I'm at I've taken enormous public uh, and professional criticism for doing what I did you know I've got, I've taken the uh, everybody deserves representation bullshit for my for my former colleagues in the business um, you know for for a couple of years now. And no, not everybody deserves representation mm. in this case. We're not attorneys. We, have, we, we, we can and should draw a line, and, and I did. So, you know, I think part of the way I've been uh, tested on this is, is pretty sharp and pretty clear. What I would add is that I honestly can't think of anyone that um, I would identify as a posing anti-Trump person. Like I don't think that exists no, in our I, national I political anybody, conversation honestly. right now. All I mean, of us in this, all of us in this category have taken enormous, enormous personal and financial and professional hits because of it. Nobody's doing this for fun. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's another question embedded in here, which you and I will continue to talk about for the next two years, maybe. Maybe sooner than that. Maybe maybe the conversation will sooner than that. But which is what happens to the relationship between Never Trump and and progressives after Trump? But I think that we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, I, I I don't know if we I don't know if we can predict that yet in a lot of ways. Yeah, I the, agree. The, the, the situation post Trump may be so dire on a whole number of areas on, on economics, on 
on race, on social issues, on a whole bunch of different spaces, that this alliance may need to be a lot longer lasting than, than, than just expedience with Mike Direct. And it's weird to say, you know, I kind of hope that isn't true, right? I hope... <laughs> right. I, I, I mean... I mean, as much as I you like, know, it, I like working with a, you. There's a, a McCain lesson: is you know, people of goodwill. Yeah. And and the, the idea that there's no one of goodwill on the on, the, on the either side of the ideological spectrum is part of where we la- how we landed here. Yeah. Let, let's go. Let's go to McCain because several people asked about that too. Which is, sure. uh, you worked with McCain. Um, I covered McCain during the time that you, you worked for him. What is your favorite? Uh, McCain's story. Or well, I wasn't on the campaign. I was outside on the right. Super PAC stuff. Um, and so I, I, I will tell you my two McCain stories. Because everybody's telling the, the, the heartwarming stories about how lovely McCain is. And I love the guy to death, okay? But my two stories were two times he lit me the fuck up. <laughs> because he did not like the Saxby Chambliss uh, Ben Laden ad against Max Cleland. That does not, did not sit well with John. And my ass bore the marks of that for some time. And he did not care for the Reverend Wright ad, even though it was moving numbers in Ohio and Pennsylvania. So, but, you know, look, John was a massive personality. He was a character that, that embodied the, the, both the beautiful uplift of, our, of our, our, the opportunities our nation gives to everyone to serve and to shine and to, and to, and to, and to push through difficulties. And and you know and the sharp elbowed, you know, pissed off guy who could who could have a temper. And you know what? And and he was a man in full. There was no you know there was nobody at the end of this process that thought you know you didn't get John McCain you know a hundred percent unfiltered. The guy was who he was, and he loved being who he was. He had this like piratical gleam in his eye, and you know what? And and he could yell at you and then turn around and be great. You know, it was like you, once you got the message, what he was yelling at you about. It was back to back to net. You know, you were back to back to the the normal John McCain you know thing. So um, there are a lot of guys who worked for them a lot more closely than I did, and, but I feel privileged to have had some you know some dealings there over the years, and some, some some touch on the, the McCain world over the years, and, and you know watching the eulogies today. You know, Grant Woods is a guy we did some work for in, in Arizona at one point when he was AG, and and watching him tell McCain stories, it's just like. It's so very um, – the, the, the guy's authenticity shines in the stories people tell about him. The history of John McCain will not be, um, you know, without all of its color and texture because he, that's just – and he's the kind of guy that American politics has kind of punished for the last 20 years. And, you know, we wanted these, these smoother, you know, less edgy, more focus group tested candidates, and we got them. And, and then Trump ate them all. And James David Barber used to talk about presidents and, and leaders in four terms, you know, active and passive and positive and negative. You know, and Trump is an is a, is a active negative guy. And Nixon was a passive negative guy. Um, and Kennedy was an active positive guy. You know, John McCain was an active positive guy. And it's even more, more important to... to, to treasure that when you know all the things John McCain went through in his life. They say it is an active, positive guy until the very last, the very last fight, the very last moment of that fight. Not to tarnish the legacy at all, but 
and I don't think it will. I think he would be proud of the question I'm going to ask you if, if you can remember exactly what he called you. Uh, as far as the writer, um, I, I believe guess? I got a son of a bitch or fool out of that. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, there was a long disquisition on how, I, how, how shitty the ad was and how, how out of bounds it was. <laughs> so. All right. That's good. So, so I, I am going to say my piece about McCain, um, which is uh, something I, I don't think I've heard other people say, which is that I don't think he gets enough credit, not for the things he said, but, but for when he didn't talk when he listened. People kind of marvel at how much reporters liked him. And there's a lot of cynicism about that. And people think, well, it's just because, you know, he flattered us and he, he allowed us access and that there was this weird, like, slavish devotion. And there may have been. And some people kind of went overboard. But my experience on the Straight Talk Express in 2008... What what I found remarkable was not that he talked endlessly to us. It was that he listened. Uh, yes. He was interested in what people had to say, and that includes reporters. Like, I don't think – I mean, he had a special kind of, you know, uh, attraction for writing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, like, he loved good writing. He loved people yeah. who loved words. But I, I think he also just was interested in stories and anyone that could tell a story. And yeah, and I, I I think that's very true. And and um, I remember a Codell he was on, and it was it was he was listening to a couple of airmen at one point, just banging away about some some fairly small technical issue during the Gulf War, and and the guy was not, you know, being U.S. senator, you know, big figure. He was being, you know, former military guy who loved talking to a couple of of, of you know the airmen first class types. And and he he was that was and he came to New York with Rudy a couple times on the Straight Talk Express and it would be the same thing we'd get out at whatever event we were at and he was talking to the cops and the firefighters and the and the and the you know the, the deli guys rather than the politicians who had lined up to come and see so I think that's exactly right he liked to listen he liked to have stories he liked to talk to people I think that and that's something that's actually also attached to his, you know, terrible experience as a prisoner of war and he would he would admit this that they kept each other alive by telling stories. Right. They, and that 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 story somebody wrote the other day about the they used this code. They would tap on the walls with this code in, in the Hanoi Hilton that because it was still out the alphabet and he was talking to a reporter and he said, "You, my conversations for five and a half years with my friends on the other side of the wall were me knocking with a spoon or knocking with something on the edge of that concrete wall, tapping out code back and forth. And he says, sometimes I still dream about it. And then he stopped and he tapped out code on the table to say the next sentence. And I was just like, oh, oh my God, that was such a hell of a story. And it's so, it's so, so everything about where he, what he became as a, as a sort of public figure. And I think that goes to his place as a politician, too, because don't get me wrong. I, I think he made mistakes and flip-flopped sure. and took stands on things that obviously I disagree with. But I think that that ability to listen and that desire to listen is what made him the kind of politician he was, too, is that, you know, sure. he was famous and, you know, for— the line about if you want to be interesting, be interested. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And he, he's famous for speeches. He's famous for, you know, things that he's done. But 
Um, I think you can back this up maybe even more with more detail than me, but he also is famous for how many hearings he would hold. He fucking loved to use his power as a senator to bring people to have him tell stories, basically. Yeah. To, like, no, find he, he shit re- out. He really did. And, and, you know, this was a guy who, who after the war, after the, the, the war in Iraq started, you know, John McCain was out every break from the Senate. He was out in the field. He went out to visit troops. He went out to see people. He went out to see it live and in person. And I was I was talking to David Petraeus the other day about this. And he said you would never you you show John was coming because you get you get a notification that that, that Congress had just gone into recess and you knew John was on the way. <laughs> but it was because he wanted to see it up close. He wanted to talk to these kids that are out there deployed around the world and be out with them. And as a senator and as a leader, you know I think that speaks volumes. Yeah, and and also is the and for the people who disagree with him politically, who um, still holds kind of a shiny, you know, respect for him. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that there were times that he listened, and then he would change his mind. You sure. know, I mean, look, John. John, I, I remember seeing a speech one time that he gave, uh, saying, you know, I once opposed the the national holiday for Martin Luther King's birthday, mm-hmm. and I have thought about that, and I've prayed about that, and I was wrong. I regret that I was wrong. I have fully changed my mind on this subject. Yeah. And that wasn't like strange new respect in Washington BS. That was a heartfelt moment where where he recognized how important that mistake had been and he corrected it. And you know, in, in today's Trumpism, you can never admit a mistake. You must always bully past it at most. You must lie about it, you know, uh, typically. And and you know, a politician who can say, I, I screwed up, uh, and reverse it and do the right thing, you know, it's, it's a rare thing in our culture now. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only costs $7 to make? I would not. I don't. With Everlane, you and I never have to overpay for quality clothes. Everlane only makes premium essentials for men and women using the finest materials without traditional markups, and they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying and why. They are radically transparent about every step in their process from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. And because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Essentials like their Cotton Crew tea are exactly how they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. Uh, I happen to be wearing uh, Everlane thing today. It is their peach-colored denim uh, wide leg pants. They are awesome. Uh, they've been great for the summer, and they they will be great into the fall, I happen to believe. Um, I have a friend who really likes the modern uh, boyfriend jean. I like the mid-rise jean, uh, something I believe it's hard to find a good pair of. You can find the high-rises, which make me feel like my mom, and you can find the low-rises, which make me feel... Uh, like I, sh- I should be more like my mom. Uh, but the mid-rise, that's the perfect one. I also have the Cotton Crew and the Silk Short Sleeve Square shirt, which is a staple for me. Their timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And you can check out my personalized collection at everlane.com slash friends, and you will get free shipping on your first order. Again, that's everlane.com slash friends, everlane.com slash friends. So now we're all warm and fuzzy. I'll ask a question that also uh, – I'm only asking you things that more than one person asked, by the way. We did got so many questions. Got it. People want to know 
what do we like about each other? <laughs> what do we like about each other? Um, I Why are like we about friends? You, that you have a beautiful wit. Um, I like your. I like the fact that you've been on this uh, on a faith journey in your life. I like the fact that you love animals. Mm-hmm. I love animals. I like the fact that we have great conversations that are that are funny and heartfelt. And once in a while, once in a while, one or both of us will go like that because we hit some unknown emotional point that got outside of the bounds of politics. That's about that's about it. I think that's enough. I will say, I like a lot of the same things about you. I think your love of animals is actually a real tell about who you really are, that you may be a professor of the dark arts, but that you are also a huge softy um, and that you <laughs> actually really care, uh, not just about small fuzzy things, but about, you know, human things and I do. that you are affected by the things that you learn. In a way, I think that's also what a lot of, you know, mushy hearted, mushy headed liberals liked about McCain is that idea that. This is someone who will acknowledge, you know, the humanity in front of them. And I know right. that about you. I, I also do. appreciate I your appreciate I mean, it's that. it's so weird. I mean, like, obviously, you're funny and it's hard, you know, it's hard to like not like people who are funny. But it's also somewhat easy to just skate along on charm. And I don't think that you skate along on charm. I think that you um, follow up. When you care about something, I think your ad in the Doug Jones race is a testament to that. And then I was saying, I also feel like we have a connection on the faith matter, and it has to do with the fact that um, you never know where you'll where you'll find grace, and that that's exactly that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and it beca- all right, everybody, you've had your mushy moment with Rick and Anna, <laughs> and we promise never to do it again. <laughs> I think we're married now. <laughs> in some states, in some cultures, I think that that's true. In some states. Yeah. All right, uh, you, 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 my friend. Um, we will talk again next month. Enjoy uh, the riches that you know being a number one bestseller has brought you. Uh, please remember us, little people, and uh, we will see you again. <laughs> I will see you very soon. All right. Bye bye. Thanks. And that is it for the show. As usual, rate interview on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast. If you can, visit our sponsors, buy from our sponsors if that is an option for you. And as always, please take care of yourself. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Not everything in life is flexible, but at Capella University, your education can be. With our game-changing FlexPath learning format, you're empowered to fit education into your life without putting other priorities on hold. FlexPath lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them when needed. You can take courses at your own speed and move on to the next one when you're ready. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.